enjoyed that extra hour of sleep. Not that I really got any extra hour of sleep, but woke up at the same time anyway. My body doesn't know we changed times. And uh, so it just woke up, and so I just got up. The dog woke up too. Dog didn't know it was time change, and it was hungry. I don't, know. I don't know why when time changes, the whole world doesn't understand and know. It's the most ridiculous thing somebody ever came up with, that we save an hour and lose an hour. God had it figured out how many hours we needed of daylight and, and darkness. And um, Men, we're so smart. We come up with this thing called daylight savings time, and then we give it back. I don't, you know, we're... Probably a politician's nightmare somewhere. They figured that out. I hope you remember to vote on Tuesday. Very important. If you haven't voted already, Debbie and I already voted. Some of you have. If you want to beat the lines, just go up to the courthouse, second floor, big sign saying vote here. And do that tomorrow during the day, and you won't have to wait in lines on Tuesday. And uh, it's important that you get out and vote. Also important to remember to pray for the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, which is today. When you think about 70 million Christians have been killed since Jesus Christ because of their belief. 70 million. 90,000 were killed in 2016. The problem is not going away. Average about 35,000 a year being killed for Jesus. And we here in America are blessed. Are blessed. Looking at Philippians chapter 2 as we uh, continue our study in the book of Philippians. And I have just been enjoying this and uh, keeps me on my toes, makes me preach things that. Uh, Paul thought was important, and, and I guess I find them important as I study them. As we stand together and look at Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. If you're keeping track, this is message number 10 <laughs> in Philippians. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself." Let each of you look not out only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Lord, bless the reading of his word. Lord, as we pray today, we thank you. As Paul said, that we can grow in all love and knowledge and discernment. Oh, that is so good, just to be able to to be able to do that. And so we're praying that that will happen to us, that we can approve the things that are excellent versus just things that are normal. Maybe choose the best. Help us, Lord, to be sincere without offense until the day of Christ and 
Be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Fill us up with fruits of righteousness that we can share with others, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Our desire is to praise you and glorify you today. So, Lord, bless the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul gave the theme of his letter chapter 1, verse 27, and, and address the problem of opposition to Christianity, which we talked about last week. And then he warned, and, or he wanted to mention a couple of areas that needed fixed in this church. They were kind of like warnings, but also uh, admonitions, get busy. If the church was to withstand the opposition that was coming from without, then they needed to have harmony within. Right? We need to get together. In fact, one of the ways that he talks about dealing with the opposition was to be of one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stand fast in one spirit. We talked about that last week. But the word therefore, it starts this chapter. When you see that word, you have to find out what it's there for, so you have to back up. But it, it's tying it in, it's connecting the reader back to his theme for this letter, which is in Chapter 1, verse 27, let your citizenship, and I told you to write the word citizenship in there instead of conduct, uh, let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He uses a specific word there that means citizenship because he's talking about the fact that they were a Roman colony, Roman citizens and all that. We really got into that. But more than that, now they are citizens of Jesus Christ. And citizenship has its privileges, it also has its responsibilities, and we dealt with that in another message. But Christians do not belong to this world. You may be a citizen of the United States, you may vote as a citizen of the United States, but you are also a citizen of heaven, and in a way, the way you live your lives is voting. For the way that you want people to live and the way, the direction you want your society to go. And so we are citizens, we don't belong to this world. We're citizens of the kingdom. We live to a higher standard. We follow a different leader. And as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, we have privileges and responsibilities. So Paul next addressed some blessings, some privileges, and some areas to work on, responsibilities, as citizens in the kingdom of God. Um, so the first area is the blessings. Respond to your blessings in Christ. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy, and so on. So Paul gave four if statements here, uh, summarizing the privileges of being a Christian citizen. These blessings set the groundwork for solving the interpersonal issues that we have to deal with as a body of Christ. Let's look at these. These blessings belong to the church as a whole. And not to just individual Christians. A lot of times we say, well, the Bible speaks to me. No, he's writing to the entire church. These are blessings for everyone. And uh, not only that, but the cumulative effect of all of these blessings is more important than one individually. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time on each one getting to all it means because it's the cumulative effect. All of these blessings, and some of them begin to sound similar in c concept. So the first one is, if there is any consolation in Christ. And consolation, a unique word used by Paul, um, they can prefer, uh, some prefer exhortation, 
here. I've read commentaries that argue towards that. Some uh, like encouragement here. Um, And they argue towards that. That's the better translation. It doesn't really matter to me. Uh, Sometimes Christians exhort each other in Christ. Sometimes Christians encourage each other in Christ, right? (laughs) We work together. We're trying to help each other. So if there's any consolation, if there's any encouragement, if there's any exhortation going on in Christ, that's good. Our first blessing is that we want to help each other in our walk with Christ. And it may take an exhortation now and then. It may take some encouragement now and then, right? But let's help each other as the body of Christ. So the second one is if there's any comfort in love. So the second blessing is the power of Christ's love that we share together. It gives comfort to each other. Uh, then any fellowship in the Spirit. And we've already talked to you, one of Paul's favorite words is koinonia, and we, we looked at that back in chapter 1, um, and it means fellowship. It really means sharing in common. And here, what he says, koinonia, of the Spirit. So in this sentence, Christians have the blessing of sharing together in common in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit unites us. The Spirit draws us. The Spirit fills us. And so we have this common worship and common ministry and common fellowship through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit uses and unites our gifts and graces in the body of Christ. And the fourth one, if there's any affection and mercy. We also have the blessing of our affection and, and sympathy and compassion towards each other in the body of Christ. So should the church have all these blessings? The answer is yes, we should. And as individuals, we participate in those together. Paul's goal in sharing all these blessings, if you have this, if you have this blessing, and this blessing, and this blessing, and this blessing, then fulfill my joy by, and he goes in to tell them a couple of things they need to work on. So he's trying to get the reader to respond out of these blessings with a hard attitude of gratitude and also moral obligation. If God has given this and this, and this, and this to the body of Christ, then the body of Christ ought to work together in improving some areas in the church. And that is what he's going to aim at here this morning. We want to be more efficient. We want to be better ministers. We want to be a better body of Christ, building the kingdom of God. So we need to respond to our blessings in Christ by the other two things that are here. The first one is, realize our unity in Christ. As we respond to the blessings of Christ, number two, we need to realize our unity in Christ, which is verse two. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Just kind of takes you back to the theme that he presented in verse 127. Yeah, when he says that we should stand past in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. So he's hitting this theme of unity. Hit it with his theme, and now he's hitting it again as an issue and a problem that this church at at Philippi needed to deal with. Now, every church has its problems. Every church has its problems. Every letter Paul wrote... Even those that he wrote to friends, uh, personal letters, he was in there hinting at problems and ways to solve them. And so here he is, he's, he's 
once again dealing with some issues that he feels needs to be corrected. Often the problem was false teachings, especially in the Corinthian church, which could severely damage Christianity. The good news is the issues Paul wrote about to the Philippian church were not false teaching issues. Uh, they were doctrinally okay. That wasn't, that wasn't their issue. Probably Paul had heard more about the problems of the Philippians Philippi church through uh, Epaphroditus, who had came from Philippi to visit Paul at Rome while he was at prison and brought greetings from the people and, and that they were praying for him and trying to encourage him while he was there in the prison in Rome. And so Epaphroditus gets sick and he sticks around and later Paul's going to send him back with this letter to the people of Philippi. So that's where he fits in. So he probably shared with Paul while he was there. And these are some of the things that I'm beginning to see in the church. Uh, no church has ever existed that has been free from problems. If you're looking for a church that's problem-free, then you're probably better off to start a church of one. You go somewhere, this is the denomination and church of Marlon Betts, because he's right, everybody else is wrong, and I will, you know... And, and that's the way some people think, and so they have to, to deal with that. Um, <laughs> Jesus' own disciples, the first church, if you want to call them that, traveled with Jesus for three and a half years. Do you think they were problem-free? Uh, they had Jesus as their leader, and they still had interpersonal issues and problems. So no church. There is no problem-free church. That's out there. So if you're looking for one, good luck. You won't find one. And just because there's no perfect church, though, doesn't mean that Christians should not work to improve the local body of Christ. The local church is constantly changing and adapting and fluctuating and improving as new people come in and older people go out. It is a constant they don't always have to be older to leave, but a lot of them leave when they get translated to heaven. But there's a constant changeover, and every time a new person comes in, it changes the dynamic. Every time a person leaves, there's a dynamic change. There's positions that need to be filled, or there's uh, situations that need to come. So it's a constant state of movement within a body of Christ. And we adapt and improve, and, and then sometimes we struggle. So no church stays the same for very long. Every church has problems. Every church has issues that need to be addressed. And you read these letters of Paul to the various churches, and he addresses a lot of different issues. We're talking about the Philippians, though. And one of the problems that the Philippians needed to work on, Paul felt like, was disunity. Paul wrote, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. So he's using these words to focus in on one of those issues. If this church could have the same vision and same focus, all of them together in worship and in ministry, then the purpose of God for this church could be better accomplished. And we know from Acts chapter 16 how this church started. Paul and Silas showed up and they began to, to work there and begin to preach. And they found out there was a little prayer meeting going on. They went down there by the river and they found Lydia who was a merchant. And she sold purple and she made a lot of money. 
Purple was, the cloth were expensive people. Those that were rich could only afford purple because it was made with the, the dye that came out of little, what do you call them, little, um, I'd say seashells, but it's not that. But anyway, these little things, that, critters that lived in the ocean had shells on them, shellfish of some sort, and they would extract just a little bit of that extract and make this dye for purple clothes, which is why it was so super expensive. She was a person who trafficked in this, a merchant of this. She was very wealthy. And then there was this slave girl who went around doing fortune-telling and uh, making her owners a lot of money because she had a demon-possessed, and, and uh, Paul and Silas kind of got tired of them following her around and doing all these prophecies about them, so they finally cast out the evil spirit. And, and so the girl became part of the new church. You have this wealthy woman. You have this poor slave girl. And then they got arrested because of casting out the demon from the slave girl, ended up in prison, getting flogged, and et cetera. And then they were down there singing in the middle of the night, singing hymns to God, praising the Lord, letting their testimony out. When an earthquake happened, and the Philippian jailer, who some thinks was an ex-Roman soldier, because a lot of retired Roman soldiers come to this town, his Roman colony, uh, he said, what must I do to be saved? And they testified to him. He became a Christian. So you have this Philippian jailer <laughs> and this slave girl and this wealthy woman putting together to become the church. That's how it started. Can you imagine any more disparity and any more differences and trying to draw together that? If a church is together long enough, it seems like they all settle down to look alike, smell alike, taste alike, I don't know. They all like coffee. They all like, you know, whatever, brand muffins. I mean, soon everybody begins to look the same in a church, right? Not really. If it's a growing church and it's a moving church, new people are coming in, new people are happening, uh, stuff is happening, new people are getting saved. It should be constantly in a state of flux, constantly changing. And it continued to happen here at Philippi. Other people came in, and it began to... Uh, Change as others came along and added to the diversity of the group. Again, I mentioned it's a Roman colony, so there's a large group. About 60% of the people they think was probably retired Roman soldiers and other Roman citizens. Plus, there was the local citizens who were born and raised in the Macedonian culture from where Philippi was, was a part of. And so you had those with those traditions. And then, because it was on a main east-west road, um, there had a lot of transients coming through. And a lot of them would stop and say, hey, it's a pretty important town. We're only 10 miles from the, from the sea. And so therefore, you know, there's a lot of trade going on here, a lot of stuff happening. A lot of them settled in with their businesses and so on. So it's a big mix. Probably not very many Jews, but a whole lot of different kind of people mixed together here in this society. And some of them began to attend this church. So unity was going to be a problem in this church as it grew. Now, Brazil, Indiana is probably not one of those places where you're going to have a lot of new people moving in. It's just interesting to me. I'm one of the few foreigners that live here. Everybody else is related. And you go back far enough, you're all connected. I think it was three people arrived here, Mr. Clay himself, or 
and a couple other people. Clay County, by the way, is named after a person, not after the, the brick manufacturing. I don't know if you knew that. But check your history. Named after a guy by the name of, was it William Clay? Henry Clay? There you go. Anyway, just kind of interesting. The unity is probably going to be a little easier in our culture because we all pretty much look whatever and related and have connections and whatever here in Brazil. But unity was a problem in this church because of the diversity that was going on. And I'm still saying, even amongst the Brazil, there's going to be different kinds of people. And we look at verse, chapter 4, verse 2. Paul talks again. He dresses two women by name. And I don't want to preach that message yet, but two women by name in this church who were not getting along. How'd you like to be called out in a letter? Oh, yeah, you, Daryl and Amber. You guys better straighten up. You know, for, for the next 2,000 years, everybody's reading about him. wonder what those guys look like, you know. wonder what they did. I wonder what they were talking about. So, I mean, he, he called them out. Um, now, let's be honest. If there is a church that is completely unified, the church has only one person in it. Because any church with active people, thinking people, talking people, that church is going to have a variety of opinions. That church is going to have a variety of interests ex uh, expressed. And so then someone is going to come along with a little different opinion, a little bit different emphasis, a little bit different interests that they like to push. And sometimes even when you change pastors, you get a little different interest, a little different ministry efforts. Things like that are, are going on. So there's going to be difference. Why do you think... Christians leave one church to attend another, mostly because they have a difference of opinion or difference in interest. And so they're going somewhere to find a church that has the same opinion they do, same ministries or interests that they do. They think that somewhere there's a group who think and act exactly like them. Why do you think there's so many small churches because they can't get along and join other churches. They have their own little opinion. They have their own little way of doing things. They have their own little sanctuary. And as long as I live, we're going to keep this sanctuary open with our three people. Or our five people or our ten people. Because this is sacred. There's one town that uh, down south of Louisiana when I was a hospice chaplain. Four Catholic churches in the area. One priest now to serve them all. But we ain't leaving our church. And they all combined, they'd have one decent-sized Catholic church, but no. So whenever there's a wedding or whenever there's a we've got to go back to that church. Go to, poor guy, he's 80 years old. I think he finally gave up, blew a tire or something. I don't know. We need to think about this. All these little, small churches, because they won't unite with anyone else. Our country is full of disunity on Sunday morning. Just a thought process. But I want to get back to the local body of believers because there's even disunity among bodies of believers. So Paul wrote, 
Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, like-minded, I like that, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Now, there is no way Paul was expecting his readers to become Christian clones. That would be really nice. Join the church, ka Join the church, ka And everybody comes out looking like pastor. That would be great. All right, everybody looks like Debbie. Yeah, the women like that. Anyway, I mean, if, if that could be possible... You pick the person in the church you'd want to look like. All right, who are you going to pick? Tom back there? Or Tom back there? All right, guys, we're all going to look like Tom, whichever one you want. Or Ray, there's three of them. Guys, make your choice. Or Steve's, there's three, three or four Steve's. All right, and gals, who do you want to pick? There's Barb's. We got some Barb's here. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, if we all were to be cloned to look like the person of Brazil Church of the Nazarene, isn't there something to be said about variety? Isn't there something to be said about what you bring and what I bring and what we all bring together as a body of Christ? Now, there's something else to consider. You and I did not get to choose our biological families. Somebody asked, are you born in a barn? I said, I don't know. I didn't get to choose who my parents were. I was fourth of, uh, you know, uh, had three older siblings. I didn't get to choose who my big brother was. That he was left-handed. And so when he taught me to play ball, I, I learned to bat left-handed. I, pfft. Yeah. I didn't get to choose all that. I didn't get to choose any of that stuff. Only thing I got to choose was who I married. Now, she chose me. But anyway, the thing, the thing that we don't get to choose is who our biological family is. We don't get to choose that. Michael never was born. We was going to have uh, Jason Michael, or, but he never happened. We got Jennifer Michelle and Jocelyn Marie and Jessica. Anyway, it, you don't get to choose Why is it we think when we come to church, we get to choose who our spiritual family is? And some churches are very particular about that. But the way I see it, when people come in, start attending and find Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they get baptized and get accepted into the, the body of Christ here, we don't get to choose who gets saved. We don't get to choose who wants to come. We just, we just have to accept them with their quirks and their weirdo personalities and whatever else that they bring, Jesus brings them in, and we say, yes, you're part of the body of Christ. Somebody allowed you in. You were a weirdo new at this place one of those times. At some point in time, unless you grew up here as a little kid. And so when we get to think about this, we don't get to choose who our spiritual family is either. But I can choose to be flexible enough to accept the people in the church who have different social backgrounds, life experiences, age, gender, different opinions, as long as we all love Jesus and can work together with him into ministry, into our community. That's where it's at, folks. 
And what makes the church unique is then when we all bring our different opinions and interests together and agree to unite them under the leadership of Christ, the head of the body, then we can work together in worship and ministry, and each one of them uses our opinions and interests to do different things and ministries. Some are prayer warriors. Some are teachers. Some are encouragers. Some are ministry leaders. But we are all part of God's local church seeking, celebrating, and serving Jesus Christ. The body. But we can't all sing, or we can't all play the piano, or we can't all, you know, whatever it is. Can't all preach. Oh, some of you do a good job at your home. But when we were children... I remember this, and I'm glad that they did it. I was raised in a preacher's home, but my parents put an emphasis on music. Made us all start taking lessons to learn to read music when we were five. And uh, I don't know, my mom said later, me, that wasted her money, but on organ lessons. I just haven't touched it in years. But we all ended up playing musical instruments. We all liked to sing, got into various singing groups. But one of the things they started doing to us is we lived in Michigan. They would travel, it was over an hour, and take us sometimes, I think probably four or five times in my life, to the Grand Rapids Symphony Orchestra on a Friday night. And so we got the cheap sheets way up high, long ways away. They were just little dots out there. And we get there way early. It was the whole experience, see? And you sit back there, and you'd watch these guys dressed in their tuxes and the women in their formal black dresses, and they'd come in. One would be carrying a violin. One would be an oboe, another French horn. One would be having their drumsticks, whatever it is, and they'd come in one at a time and take a seat and fiddle with their music and do this, and you'd hear them... They were practicing a, a, a difficult spot in one of the songs. It was the most discordant mess that you ever heard. And you go, what on earth is going on, you know, in your mind as a young child? And it just fascinated me. Dad would bring his, his glasses, and we'd pass those around, and we'd be there looking at him. And, wow, look at that. What's that? That's a bassoon. Okay. Well, you know, and we'd be talking about it and, and the interest would, and get excitement. And all this would go on. They'd raise the stage up with a grand piano or whatever, whoever, you know, the soloist was for the evening, and they'd do all this different stuff. And then the concert master would stand up, first chair violin, and you hear all this fade out. You play the A. They'd all listen. You play the A. And then all of a sudden, everybody get their particular instruments. Play the right note. Tune it up. And then they'd play the A again. And then everybody stopped. There was the pause. And out from the wings, across the stage, came the conductor with his baton. Stepped up. Well, he'd stand beside it. When he'd step up, Everybody would snap to. He'd raise his arms. They'd put their instruments to their mouths, up on their shoulder. Boom. And the
and the symphony would begin. Kettle drums. <laughs> Violins, cellos, bass, all of it. The woodwinds, the brass. And we would be transported musically away to some place. Oh, that's boring music. No, it taught us to love. Whole place filled with the sound. A piccolo solo here. A French horn and a cello going at it. Some of the songs we got to know. Some we would listen to at the house. What is it? Today, music is strum on a guitar and sing off key. Or yell or scream or yeah! into the microphone, you know. And oh, that's cool. No, then it was symphony. It was, it was 60, 70 people getting in harmony, in sync, playing on their beat at their time with harmony, with melodies, with crescendos. All those different people were like people in a church. You all come with your own things. I like the bass line. I like, the, I like to play the little high notes, and I like this, and I like that. And we make all our little discords throughout the week, but when we come into the worship service and the master conductor steps up on the platform and gets our attention and draws us all in, we begin to love. We begin to minister we begin to move together. We get in symphony. And one of the Greek words he used has symphony as part of the name. We're synchronized. We're putting it together. Why? Because it's the cause of Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. We want to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Community Choir is practicing without accompaniment this week. She was playing the parts, and so there's this one song where there's a lot of rest. And then you sing, and then you rest and sing. And I came in early, just blared it out, got the whole place laughing. I thought Barb Ferry was going to fall over. If you're going to make a mistake, might as well make it loud and proud. You know, that's what I was going to say. Anyway, was, I wasn't in sync. The symphony of the church all of our opinions and interests and abilities are important. They really are. But only the divine conductor can bring us united in mission so that we begin to produce beautiful ministry in unity. And only the love of Christ can make a group of different people and unite us in purpose and service together. We must have the same mindset to love and serve Jesus Christ. Be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. So because of our blessings in Christ, out of gratitude and out of moral obligation, we need to realize our unity. We're working for him. We're doing something for Jesus. But we also need all of these blessings to reveal your humility in Christ. Number three. Because another problem Paul needed to address 
in the Philippian church was self-centeredness. Maybe what those two women couldn't get along. Maybe it was something self-centered. I don't even know if I'm going to find out why they were upset. I'm sure there's a million opinions on it. Somebody posted something on Facebook before the other one, and I'm sure those two had a fit over it. Whatever it was, she didn't like it. She unfriended her. I don't know. No, it's hard to have unity when someone in the group begins to think that they are more important than someone else in the group. It sounds like there was a threat to the fellowship of love and ministry of the church because some members acted like they were more important than the rest. And the devil would like us to think that we are indispensable to the body of Christ. The work of the church. But you know, I've moved on to different churches and they seem to do just fine without me. I know you wouldn't think that, but it just kind of happens. I'm not indispensable. God has a way of reworking. Anytime somebody leaves or moves, God has a way of reworking that body. You ever notice that? He reworks it so that various church ministries and, and things, so that, that uh, others carry on the essential aspects of kingdom work after we're gone. But tell you what, they probably don't do it the way you did it. They probably do it better than you did it because they have fresh insights and new ways of which to approach that situation and then they move it forward. Well, when I leave, there's going to be a big hole there. No, I'm sorry. Three teenagers are going to take your position and run with it and do ten things more than you ever did. Because those teenagers are going to be on fire for the Lord. And you just thought it was your position. They ought to put a plaque on your toilet. (laughs) Or in your office, or... We do put a plaque on the wall out there with your name on it. I don't see anybody standing there every day and looking, oh, there's so-and-so. Yeah, there's so-and-so. In fact, we just walk right on by. Yeah, they were here. Oh, they died way back in 2003. Bless their little heart. Polish their plaque. I'm sorry, folks. Your position gets filled. The body of Christ moves on. And to tell you that, to tell you that you will be replaced. (laughs) As great as you are, as awesome as you are. So we better begin to think about ourselves as not being the most important people in the church, but instead begin to think about ourselves as part of the body of Christ. Amen? So Paul pointed out some very specific self-centered problems (laughs) Using specific words. He says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Oh, boy. Selfish ambition? You know, there's always a danger in church work that someone will begin to advance him or herself and forget the real focus of ministry is to advance who? We're to advance Jesus Christ. So who's trying to advance you when you're supposed to be advancing him? He's the one that gets exalted. If something good comes out of what you do, point it to Jesus. Give him the honor and the glory. Amen. Wow. 
Many church leaders have used church work as an opportunity to move up to bigger and better and so on and so forth. I can tell you, in the Church of the Nazarene, some churches that you ought to go to if you want to move up. You got to get off Indiana District, that's for sure. But I'm telling you that this is not the thing. The thing is to advance Jesus. Selfish ambition. Conceit. (laughs) That's the next word. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Don't let it be done through conceit. Conceit is a very interesting word. Word used only here in the New Testament. Paul, he uses words that no one else uses, and he picks them. Specifically, this word, you've got to love this, is a compound of two words put together. The one word means empty. Don't you love that? Second word to make conceit is opinion. <laughs> Throw them together in one word, and so we translate it conceit. But empty opinion. A conceited person is one who has a high opinion of him or herself, but when you really get to know that person, all you find is emptiness, hot air, a bunch of It's interesting, you come to a church and your initial visit or two and find these people that, they blow you away and you're going, wow, then you find out they don't do anything. You find out they're really not active. You find out they really don't work. All they are is, they're not praying, they're not visiting, they're not this, that, the other. They're just, they got a good smile and happy way about them. But in lowliness of mind, let each other esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not to only for his own interest, but rather for the interest of others. The word actually in Greek is but rather instead of also. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, same idea. Own interest. If personal interests are the only thing that matters, then the work of God is going to suffer. If the only thing you're interested in is doing what you're interested in doing instead of what God is interested in doing, we're going to have problems in the church because we're going to have three people over there, I want to do what I want to do. Three people over here, I want to do what I want to do. Three people over here, I don't want to do nothing. And then we wonder why we're not all together because the head, the conductor, is trying to put us together to do something to worship and glorify God and then to do ministry. It's not three people in the children's ministry department. We're all supporting the children's ministry department. It's not just three people in the youth, three people in the bus ministry, three people in the prayer group. It's all of us. Wow, I lost everybody. The problem with the big church is they hire people to do their work, and they sit back and make fun of them and criticize and gripe and complain. Small church, we require volunteers. Help. That's good preaching. If personal interest is the only thing that matters, then the work of God is going to suffer. What you want to do will mean that you don't have time for what God wants you to do. Because I'm too interested in what I want to do. As Scott McDaniel said yesterday, there's the people that sit around with the video games covered with Cheeto dust. 
That's a group today. Also, putting personal interests first means you will be colliding with others who are trying to put God first. Because if we got an interest together as a church, and then you're saying, no, I'm only going to do my little thing over here. Can you imagine that symphony orchestra? If one violin player decides they're just going to play a different song. Three blind mice, three blind mice. Everybody else is going, dun-dun-dun-dun, dun-dun-dun-dun. Beethoven's fifth. Anyway, interesting. We're going to be clashing against what God wants. Pushing others down or out of the way so you can do what you want is harmful in the church. Paul mentioned that the cure for self-centeredness was an attitude of lowliness of mind. And that's where you get the word humility. Lowliness of mind. He stated it this way, let each esteem others better than himself. And look out, not just for your own interest, but rather for the interest of others. Hmm. Obviously, this concept of thinking that others are better than you seems ideally impossible. It would be in society. Some would say it's unreasonable to begin to think this way. And so when I was reading this in some of the commentaries, I'm going, oh, I can't preach this. This isn't even practical. So much of our society is based on competition. So much of our society is based on comparison. Who's got this? Who's got that? Who did this? Who did that? How many? Well, I'm better than you. If that's the way society is, I don't care how many people I stomp on to get where I'm going, but I'm going to be CEO in five years. And that's what we deal with on a regular basis out there. But it's different when you come in here, folks. It's different. I happened to work by a, a, a base. Well, it was a fort, Fort Polk. And pastored down there for five years. And, and when they would come in, it didn't matter if there was a sergeant, a lieutenant, or a private. When you came to church, ladies and gentlemen, you were equal in the body of Christ. A private could get up and teach a Sunday school class, and a lieutenant could be sitting there. It did not matter. We're in church. We're the body. Now, out there on the rifle range or somewhere else, you better listen and do what the guy says. But when you come into the church, folks, we're the body of Christ. Some would say this is unreasonable. So much of our society is based on competition and comparison. I read that. So much of emotional wellness today is based on your personal self-esteem and self-respect, and we hear that all the time. So how can we as a church say, oh, let everybody else be better than you? That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't look so highly on yourself that you also don't see the value in others. Because practically speaking, if we would take a step back and observe, get on our little drone and come back up 
and get a bird's eye view, a God's view of, of what, what was going on more objectively, we would all have to agree that there are other Christians who have virtues and abilities that they do better than we do. Right? And, and there are other Christians who have gifted areas and, and areas we're lacking in a little bit that they do better and those Christians should look back and walk, step back and, and admit that we have some spiritual gifts and practical skills that add to the ministry of the body of Christ as well. Everybody is here, has something to contribute, and we do something better and something worse than somebody else. Amen? So don't esteem yourself more highly than other people. So in humility, we need to realize that we need each other if the work of the church is going to happen. Their skills plus your skills means we can accomplish more if each person contributes what he or she does best. Instead of our focusing on our own interests, we should look out to see what others are interested in, what others are working with and working on. How can I help in her ministry? How can I encourage his walk with Christ? How can I support that teacher or leader? How can this group of us get together and finish this project that needs to be done? What can I do to help those who are reaching the children or the youth? What can I do, in the, what can I do for the buses? What? Because we're all in this together. It's not their children's ministry. It's our children's ministry. Ladies and gentlemen, it reflects on all of us. The problem we face is that personal experience has taught us that real humility is not a value to be sought after in our society. No, all we hear today is my rights. That's my choice. I can do with my body what I want to. You can't tell me what to do. And on and on it goes. It just keeps, keeps coming down. My happiness, that's what's important. What do I get out of this? No, all we hear today is that. But Paul's words tell us that if we choose humility, then we will be swimming against the current of society. We are going to be the weirdos and the oddballs because they are all about themselves and we are all about somebody else, Jesus Christ. You're going to have to be different. That is why we have to look outside of our human friends if we're going to find an example to find out what humility is all about. And since you really want to know what humility is all about, you got to go to the next passage. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. Who? Boom. And Paul is getting to that. He's addressing the need of unity and humility and then he turns to Jesus Christ and tells his story. Which is one of the most profound passages in the entire book of the Bible. How Jesus emptied himself, became one of us, and was obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has exalted him. So that's the problem. There's nowhere we can look for each other. There's very few people who have, who have been totally free of this issue, but Jesus was. So the example of Christ has to become our role model for humility. That is why Paul wrote about him. It is our responsibility to follow the will of God through the humility of Christ if we're going to become the body of Christ, the local church God wants us to be. And churches that struggle are not focusing on Jesus. Jesus. 
They're focusing on my opinion, my way, my church, my interest. It doesn't take long when you're new, like a pastor coming into a church, you begin to figure out who the my people are. When through our united ministry, as we begin to lift up Jesus, as we begin to keep pointing to the cross and keep saying it's all about Jesus, children's ministry, it's all about Jesus, senior adults, it's all about Jesus, your Sunday school class, it's about Jesus, your Bible study, your prayer group, it's about Jesus, the bus ministry, it's about Jesus, the new stuff that we're talking about, and there's some conversation going on, and I keep trying to get us pushed in this direction, it's all about Jesus, folks. I just keep wanting to ask, when we do this thing, Harvest Barn, how is that about Jesus? Right? Whatever we do in the name of the church, how is it about Jesus? How about that field trip? How about this we're planning? Whatever. When does Jesus get into this thing? Because we're a body of Christ. We're not just offering food. We're offering Jesus. It's more than breakfast. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And we may not agree on everything, and you may not like everything that I say or what I do. That's okay. It's about Jesus. Love Jesus, and you'll get to liking me. And you'll like the person you're sitting next to that you've been married to for 50 years. Love Jesus. It'll work on you. We're kissing down here in the front row. When we unite our ministry together and we lift up Jesus, other people come to him and find the answer to their need of life. And our church will then be fulfilling our mission to our full potential. You can do this with another pastor. You can. If you love Jesus. You can do this with different board members. If you all love Jesus, you can do this. I'm just a spokesperson bringing Paul's message. It's here. It's here. It's been here for 2,000 years. It's all been Jesus. Paul's challenging his readers to step up to a higher level. That was the issue in Philippi. Disunity and selfishness. Self-centeredness. Now we cannot be Christ but we can have his life as our pattern to follow. And we can have access to the Holy Spirit to guide us in the nuances of what unity and humility look like in our lives today, in our brand, Brazil Church of the Nazarene. What does it look like? And these probably aren't our main problems. There's a lot of unity and a lot of humility in this church. But the privileges of Christian citizenship are wonderful blessings. If you have love, if you have fellowship, if you have this, if you have that, then, he says, let's unite together. And let's realize the need for personal humility to allow other people to do what they are good at. So we as a body of Christ, we come together, support each other, work together for the advancement of the cross of Jesus Christ.
I'll do what God wants, even if the jobs no one else wants. Give him the credit if my efforts turn out successfully, because it's all about Jesus. Let us continue to pray. What do you want us to do to get outside of the walls of our church? Let's continue to have this conversation. It came up in a Bible study this week, and I was, ooh, yes. People starting to give out some ideas. What can we do to get outside and share Jesus with the world? What can you do? What's on your heart? Pray about it until God lays something on your heart, and then we'll get together with three other people or ten other people that have the same kind of what's on my heart, and maybe you can put together a group and actually do something outside of the four walls. It's one thing to take up an offering to feed the hungry, the 800 kids all summer long, they need it. That's one thing. But who's giving them Jesus? Give them a free sack lunch or whatever it is. We pray for the community as a whole, but who's doing it in the name of Jesus? Who's out there? So please, let's pray. How can we do this? How can we be united? How can we take our blessings outside? How can we in humility say, we're not better than the church down the street, but God, lay it on our heart to do something for the cause of Christ? And it may be we're going to have to join up with a couple other people in some other churches to get this thing to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know something needs to start. God's laying it on our hearts, folks. It's family altar time, and we turn to him again. A few minutes we'll be in communion, which is interesting because it's a blessing. It's also uniting one table one body, Lord, it's also humility. It reminds me how unworthy I am. When I think of what Jesus did on the cross, his body, his blood, fits right in with the message. But today, if you want to pray, lost loved ones, lost people in the community, people that you know that need Jesus, maybe you just need to surrender yourself to some of these issues then come and pray. As we stand together, praise team comes to sing. Lord, it's time for your Holy Spirit to move in our midst. You've already been talking. Now, Lord, we need to respond. You know our hearts. You know who needs to humble. You know who needs to unite. You know who's not living up to all their blessings. I pray that you'll guide us as a group to come together. You know what needs need to be met outside the doors of this church what needs to mean to be supported within the church, I pray that you'll just continue to guide us moving forward as we pray as a body of Christ here at this family altar time. In Jesus' name. Again, I would ask that those who have someone on your heart, please come down, pray for them. Pray for our community. Pray for the lost. As we go before the Lord in prayer, we need Jesus, don't we? And we need him to get out of our doors and into the community. But it starts at prayer. Who's going to join us down here? Let's pray. There's lost. There's hungry. There's needy. There's hurting. Right here. Within a few blocks of our church.
and you know somebody who's unsaved. You know somebody who needs Jesus. I'd just like to see our church just full of people seeking God on behalf of the lost. Amen. Lord, we come to you today. There's representative here on the altars of, of people praying for those who are in the pews or the seats. Many of them feel the same way. And Lord, we are concerned. And we're asking our Heavenly Father to give us some divine wisdom to know what the next step should be. The church of today needs to reach out to the church of tomorrow and find a way to bring them in. And Lord, the only way we know to do that is to go. Nowhere does it say stay inside. It says go. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us to go to make disciples, baptizing and teaching. That you're commissioned to all of us if we claim Jesus as our Savior. Lord, we just need to find a way to do it. Get outside of our little comfort zones. Find ways to get together with other people who believe like we do and find a way to take the gospel. So it's more than just what we celebrate here on Sunday, but it's what we live in front of the world through the week. Make us strong. Make us compassionate. Make us bold. Give us courage. Give us commitment. And help us, Lord, to begin to take strides. But you show us exactly what it is that we need to be doing. I pray for your leadership. Lord, we don't want to go and shake a bunch of trees and get hit on the head with bricks. We want fruit. Lord, we want to, we want to see fruit brought into the kingdom. We don't want to just do what someone else is doing. We want to do what you want us to do. We don't want to read a book and say, this is what you do. We want Jesus to show us. Unite us in the Holy Spirit to find out what can our body of Christ do to our community, to those that need Jesus. What can we offer? What ministry do we need? Lay it on our hearts, Lord Jesus. Okay. Begin the conversation amongst concerned Christians. And Lord, help those that are running ahead. <laughs> Have to wait a little bit for some of us to catch up so that we can unite together on this. And Lord, I just pray that you will be with those that have lost loved ones. We lift up the Buck family, the Kump family. Lord, would you be with them? Be with those that are in the nursing homes, those that are recovering from surgeries. Be with those, Lord, today that have lost loved ones. And we pray that you will go where those lost loved ones are and minister to them and bring them, call them, convict them. And we would pray, Lord, that you will help the ministries of the church to continue to go forward. Help me as pastor to know what I should be doing as a leader. Help the board to know. But Lord, lay souls on our hearts. And love those souls through this group. Help us now as we worship you and unite together in communion. Continue our time together. We love you, Jesus. Thank you. All God's people said, amen.